CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's Friday, October 15th, 2021. Here's this headline in theweek.com. Very apropos to what we're going to talk about. Kirsten Cinema's poll numbers should terrify her. Yes, Senator Cinema. Poll numbers should terrify her. Longtime listeners to Ben Jarowski Show can pretty much guess who I'll be talking to. And so I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then we'll take it away with a great conversation. Distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University. I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And I write regularly for the week and um, eager to, uh, you know, talk about the Democratic Party today. You know, the, the entity that's on everyone's tongue. You know? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so there's two uh, issues that I want to talk to you about, but three, actually. Let's not forget... Uh, Future Governor Nicholas Kristof, uh, New York Times uh, columnist who's announced that he wants to run or is intending to run or thinking about running uh, for governor of Oregon, his home state. And so he's stepping down from the New York Times as a columnist. Pretty good gig being columnist for the New York Times. Uh, stepping down. We'll get into that, uh, get David's thoughts on whether that's um, going to be a successful venture for him. Let's start with the Kirsten Cinema story. Uh, and it's a headline over an article that you wrote. Uh, and this is a recurring theme uh, on our show and our conversations. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Uh, and folks, I just like to remind you uh, I, a conversation I had with David. I think it was uh, October of 2020. It was just before the elections. And he was recalling a nightmare he had where uh, he had, this is, this is what a political geek he is, ladies and gentlemen. He foresaw the situation, 50-50 tie in the Senate, and Joe Manchin was the decisive vote. We didn't realize about Kirsten Cinema, who her own way is a little more of a challenge, I would say, even more peculiar political behavior than Joe Manchin. As David has pointed out many times, Joe Manchin is uh, a senator in a state that's overwhelmingly red. 
They love Donald Trump in West Virginia. So one could understand why he may be a little reluctant to jump on the Democratic uh, bandwagon. Arizona is a whole other situation. Uh, and the explanation, it just is baffling. Kirsten Sinema's uh, positions that she's taking and uh, the persona about uh, that she's allowing to emerge. So, David, you were the uh, author of the essay and uh, that whose headline I already quoted. Uh, which, uh, talk about the poll numbers uh, that uh, and what they say about Kirsten Sinema's future. Yeah, sure. It's not good. She doesn't have a political future. That's the that's the <laughs> that's the long and short of it. Uh, so this uh, this left this left leaning polling outfit, which actually I think we will end up circling back to you um, when we get into our, our next subject. But it's called Data for Progress. Um, it's run by this this guy named Sean McElwee, who was uh, um, who was like a really radical figure on the left, um, sort of early in the Trump years, and then he started Data for Progress, um, and he's he's moved away from some of the. Uh, the more abolish ice type of uh, positions that he held a few years ago, uh, but they do they do good polling. Their polling has been has been decent, um, uh, often really good, and so they commissioned a poll of the Democratic primary electorate in in Arizona, right? That is um, Democrats and independents who are, are likely to vote in the twenty twenty four Senate primary when Kirsten Sinema is up for reelection, and what they found. Um, was that uh, Kirsten Cinema is about as popular in Arizona as like COVID nineteen? You know, she's got a um, <laughs> she's got a twenty five percent approval rating among the Democratic primary electorate, which is really which is really astounding. And in the same poll, they asked people about their approval. Again, they asked Democratic primary voters about their approval of President Joe Biden, of Senator Mark Kelly, who's the other senator from Arizona elected last year, and then of Kirsten Cinema. Um, Biden got 85% approval. Uh, Mark Kelly got 85% approval. And Kirsten Sinema is at 25%. Um, and they pulled a series of potential primary challenges to her, just head-to-head -head polling. And a uh, U.S. representative, a member of the Progressive Caucus named uh, Ruben Gallego, got, uh, be was beating her by 39 points in a, in a hypothetical matchup for the, for the primary in, in Arizona. Um, these are just like lights out numbers for Kirsten Cinema. Like, I don't know how she could possibly win a primary in, in Arizona if it were held any, any time close to today, unless she, she under, unless she comes to Jesus, you know, and, uh, and starts playing ball and, and is not seen by the primary voters of Arizona as like the person that prevented us from getting paid family leave and, and all the other things that she's trying to cut in half or eliminate from the, the spending bills that we're talking about. Um, I think that the people, Democrats have just have had it with her, um, not not just in Arizona. I, I think Democratic primary voters all over the country are, are, who are paying attention to politics right now are very, very frustrated with Kirsten Sinema. So it's it's a poll that really <laughs> makes the, you've know, seen these defenses online that people that are just like, whatever the Democrats do is right. Um, that are like, well, she's just doing what she needs to do to get elected in Arizona. She's a moderate. Arizona is a toss-up state. You know, I mean, she can't be too far to the left. And it's like, uh, no, that's not how it's going to go at all. Um, the Democrats, I think, are really, I mean, at least our primary voters, are, are like yearning for the kind of party discipline that, that President Trump imposed on the Republicans. You know, and again, you don't have to do it with, uh, with catchy name calling. You know, crazy Kirsten, um, you don't have to do that stuff. But uh, but they do want everyone in the party to to go along with the president's agenda. Um, 
and she's she's not doing that. She's made herself, I think, I would argue probably the least popular elected Democrat in the Senate since Joe Lieberman. Um, and that's that's been, you know, 13 years or so since Joe Lieberman was a Democrat in the Senate. Um, I've, it, it's, I haven't seen anybody do this to themselves since, since him. And uh, again, she is totally inscrutable. No one knows what she wants. She's off in Europe right now, like hobnobbing with lobbyists when she's not doing a, an internship at a winery. I mean, I think that she's just maybe just a, just a, you know, I think she's maybe just like a bit out there. Um, and the thing about the Senate, Ben, is that we're stuck with this person for, for three more years. Uh, and the only opportunity to go after her is, is to, is to take her out in the primary. And I, I think if she, I doubt she'll run, uh, given these numbers, I wouldn't run in a primary if I had, had 25% <laughs> approval among the people that had to put me back in office. So Anyway, it made my day. I mean, like reading that poll, like go, I encourage your listeners to go to the Data for Progress website, read the poll. It is as close to doing cocaine as you will ever come um, from, from, a, from, just a, from just reading polling data. It's incredible. It gave me a high that lasted all day and has not dissipated yet. I'm just, I'm so happy. <laughs> well, I definitely didn't want to bring down your high, but let, let me just try to bring you down to earth a little bit. And I feel as though, I said this to the last conversation, that uh, it's pretty clear to me that we cannot view Kirsten Cinema as a Democrat. And uh, you pointed out, and you've pointed out many times, that her uh, position in the Democratic Party is what enables Chuck Schumer to be the uh, majority leader of the Senate, uh, is what enables uh, Democrats to chair uh, all, the signif- all the Senate committees. Uh, and so it's very important that the Democrats hold that majority position. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, but she in no way reflects the values of what um, uh, most Democratic voters have. And I am not going to do a false equivalency between Democratic voters who believe in things like, oh, I don't know, fixing our streets and Republican voters who swear allegiance to Donald Trump, uh, no matter what he says or what he does, or no matter how far-fetched uh, his idiotic uh, allegations are about having the election stolen from him. I do believe there's a critical difference between one and the other. Uh, so um, I... I feel as though that it's pretty clear that uh, she's effectively become a Republican and that if she has a political future, she'll look at those same poll numbers that you saw and do what I expect her to do, uh, and that is flip to the Republican Party, at which point she will be welcomed with open arms by the Republicans. It will be so bizarre, that's, and they'll, they'll try to use that uh, against the Democrats. See, you drove her out. She was just wanted to be fair to all, and you drove her out. And that's just the way it is with the Republican, with the Democratic Party. If you don't swear allegiance to the radical left and Bernie Sanders uh, and Elon Omar, then they kick you out. Uh, so welcome to the Republican Party, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, so, what's your thoughts uh, on that nightmare scenario, David Ferris? You know, it's it's of course it's possible that she would change parties to the to the Republican Party. Um, but uh, she also wouldn't survive very long as a Republican. In other words, she's not going to win an election in 2024. I think no matter what she does, um, because even if she flipped to the Republican Party, unless she goes full MAGA, you know, I, I mean, unless she's, she says like, I, you know, I, I, 
I support the audit of the election in Arizona and, and Donald Trump is the right president. That's the litmus test of being the Republican Party right now, right? The litmus test is you have to deny that the 2020 election was legitimate. Um, and uh, it's hard for me to see her pulling that off competently. And the other problem is that for Republican primary voters, why would they want her, right? Like they want, you know, they want a true believer, right? They, they want someone, they want to they own the libs, man. I mean, they want the culture war. And I, it's not clear to me that Kirsten Sinema has any fixed principles. Um, and so in one sense, I guess it'd be easy enough for her to just flip and become a full, you know, crazy Republican person. But I, I, there's been so little of this in recent years that it's hard to see it working. Um, you know, the uh, if you remember back in 2000, uh, it was 2008, um, Arlen Specter, who was a Republican senator from Pennsylvania, switched parties to the Democrats and then tried to win a Democratic primary and he lost. Um, I, I think the people are just too hardened in their partisanship right now to accept uh, like a refugee from the other party and then to give that person, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. um, you know, a, pri a big primary win. Um, you know, uh, what's his name? Jeff Van Drew, the congressman from, from New Jersey, he, he did survive, right? He switched to Republicans and, and, and he was able to get through. But this is a statewide race. It's, it's going to be much higher profile than just a, just a house rep from, from New Jersey. And she is such a lightning rod um, that if she were to switch parties um, and if she were, I think, against all odds to capture the Republican nomination in 2024 for that seat, and I, I think Democrats would just spend like a billion dollars to, to beat her. Um, and so obviously we don't want to drive her out of the party right now because um, despite all of this stuff, like we'd still rather have the Senate majority than, than, than not have it. I'd still rather get a $1.3 trillion bill through with some cool stuff in it than nothing. Um, God forbid uh, that Stephen Breyer finally realizes that he should retire or, or he dies and, and we don't have the Senate anymore. That means we're not going to be able to fill the seat. Right. So, I mean, there's there's reasons to try to keep her in the party. Um, but I also think that this is this is the kind of data that she needs to see. Um, and the the only pressure, the only leverage that we really have over Kirsten Cinema is the threat to take her out in a primary in 2024. Um, and so I was really happy to see specific names attached to that primary challenge. I'd love to see one or two or three or all four of those people declare. <laughs> their candidacy against her as soon as possible so that, so that, so that she knows she's going to have a primary challenge. Um, and, um, you know, this, this is what, this is what we've been waiting for, I think is, um, is for a challenge from the left to, to scare her. And, and we don't know what motivates Kirsten Cinema. Maybe she just wants to go work on a vineyard and, and, and like do triathlons or whatever. I don't really know what makes her tick, but if she wants to get reelected to the U S Senate as a Democrat, um, she needs to change and she needs to change like yesterday. Because um, once once this perception of her sets in, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone come back from from primary polling numbers this bad. Um, you know, there were a bunch of Republicans who would not bend the knee to Trump over the last few years. Um, and a lot of them saw primary polling numbers like this and they just left Congress. Um, they're like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and uh, as you pointed out, I'm not making an equivalence to Trump, right? Like this is this is party discipline in the service of like um, uh, fundamentally altering the, the social compact in America so that you are not like one uh, cancer diagnosis away from ruin or, um, you know, you have to take a second mortgage on your house to afford childcare. Like all of the things that the spending is meant to address are real problems that people are suffering from. 
and she and she and her friend Joe Manchin are the ones standing between us and some really important and far-reaching changes that we have been fighting for for a really long time. Um, and so I, I, I dislike Kirsten Sinema personally, I, but if she comes around, she comes around. I don't care. That's great. Because what we want is these policies. You know, um, We don't want fealty to some uh, cult leader like we have on the Republican side. Like, <laughs> this is not about Joe Biden, <laughs> right? Like, Joe Biden does not have a cult. Um, and uh, uh, she just, she needs to get on board or she needs to get out of the way. And I, and, and this, this is a great poll for that. And I hope, I'm sure her staff has seen it. I'm sure she's seen it. Um, I, I guess in between rounds of, uh, uh, wine over, um, over on the continent there, maybe she can, uh, maybe she can have a little soul searching if she's capable of it. I don't really know. Yeah. As soon as you started, uh, breaking down the situation, I realized that it was preposterous to think that Kirsten Cinema could defeat a, a real, a real MAGA person in a Republican primary. While you were talking, I was like, oh my God, yeah, there's no way. Maybe if Donald Trump himself came to Arizona and endorsed her, but even then, I mean, there's issues like abortion rights. Uh, MAGA is, you know, sworn uh, to oppose abortion uh, in pretty much every case. That's what the Texas abortion law is all about. So that's where that line's been drawn. So it'd be really hard to see her winning over Republicans uh, on on that issue. Uh, and then you're right, you would have to say that Donald Trump uh, had the election uh, stolen, which is a ludicrous position. And then finally, there's the whole divide over COVID, which we've spent so much time on the regular show talking about on a local level where the Chicago Fraternal Order Police are drawing a line on uh, vaccine mandates when having a, setting up for a showdown with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, and they're making it clear that, uh, and they're wildly supported by MAGA and Fox TV, et cetera, that that's a dividing line too. So I do, yeah, you're right. So she'll have to flip flop on all those issues. And that's asking a lot of a MAGA voter, uh, to go against her that the, I mean, to go for her in light of that. The other interesting thing about the poll, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, uh, is it showed like a consensus thought among Democrats that is similar. You alluded to this already to Republican, uh, thought regarding Trump. So that poll, 85% approval rating for Joe Biden, as you pointed out. Also for Mark Kelly, who's the other Democratic senator from Arizona, who's hardly a radical uh, Bernie Sanders type. And um, my guess is, uh, David, that that's where we are across the board, that sort of the, um, the threat that uh, the existential political threat that Donald Trump and MAGA represents to most Democrats is so overwhelming and scary that their allegiance is with the Democrat. And uh, when I see 85% uh, support for Joe Biden among Democrats in Arizona, that kind of gives me a different view of where polling is in this country. I'd love to get your thoughts on this because you study polling. Right now, Joe Biden... The public opinion, one public opinion poll had him as low as I think it was 38 percent. I'm doing this off the top of my head uh, and usually somewhere in the 40s. But I think we're seeing a situation much like with Donald Trump, where the Democrats are sticking with Joe Biden. And that like things like overall polling numbers perhaps aren't don't tell the full story. Uh, take a little deep dive in this. Sure. I mean, so this, this is, you know, it's, it's one poll, right? Um, th this poll could be 10 points off for, for all we know. And even 10 points off, it's not going to help Kirsten Cinema, but it, 
it uh, it does give us some insight into the mood of the Democratic electorate. And the fact that Biden retains such high support among Arizona Democrats, I think, suggests that his agenda that he's trying to push through it remains popular. A, B, I think people are mostly not blaming him for the fact that it's not getting enacted, um, and uh, that that is that. And this is a poll of these are mostly more politically engaged Democrats than the Democratic electorate at large. Does that make sense? That there's a voter screen here um, to try to determine whether you would whether you're likely to vote in the 2024 Democratic primary. Um, and if there's one thing that we know in, in political science, it's that the primary electorate in both parties tends to be um, more ideologically minded, uh, more politically engaged, um, and, and a little bit, you know, to the left or to the right of the even the median voter in their own party, right? So um, I, I would, if I was Joe Biden, I would take it as a as a good sign um, that he has such high marks among the Democratic primary electorate because you would think that these might be the people most likely. To be so frustrated with the inaction in Washington right now that they had, they, they would withdraw their support from Joe Biden, um, and I, I think it's a it's a good sign for Democrats overall that that's really not the case here. I mean, it could be higher than eighty five percent, right? <laughs> like in a, in an ideal world, it would be over ninety percent, and I think it probably will be come election day, because as as you as you said, this is the the next two elections are going to be partly about what Democrats have or have not achieved in office. Um, you know, did we get the, the paid uh, medical leave? Did we um, get the vision and dental benefits for Medicare? Um, did we make community college free? Did we forgive the student debt? Right? All these economic issues that are um, very popular, uh, you know, the, the Biden plans for it are very popular among the voters, our voters. Um, that's going to be one half of it. But the other half of it is going to be a, it's going to be a defensive election um, as, as the threat of incipient authoritarianism hangs over the country as, as Donald Trump is determined to make next year's elections about him, inevitably that is gonna reproduce the dynamic from 2020, 2018 and 2016, where Democrats are so terrified of this person that on election day, I'm not sure they're really gonna care what we did or didn't do. You know, it's still better than, it's still better than turning power over to Trump. That's, that's the power of negative partisanship there. Um, and, <clears throat> You know, Kirsten Cinema should really look in the mirror that she's not benefiting from that. Um, in other words, that the voters are not giving her the same benefit of the doubt in terms of like their frustrations with the government so far. And they're not giving her the benefit of the doubt because it's her fault, right? Like she is a very prominent public national face of this gridlock. Um, and Joe Biden is not. Um, I, I think that most voters... You know, maybe they think he should be, uh, you know, calling her out on Twitter or something. But I think that they recognize that he can't force her to vote for the package, right? He can't force her to do anything. Um, that this is not like party list proportional representation where the Democrats can like take her off the list next time. They have to face her in a primary election. Um, so uh, anyway, I mean, those those numbers, especially in Arizona, um, suggest that there, there really hasn't been a ton of erosion in, in Biden's support, maybe a little bit among independents. Um, but Biden also got a couple of good polling numbers this week, um, one from uh, one from CNN that put him at 50 percent. So there's been I think there's been a little bit of a rebound from his lowest points. There was one poll this week from Quinnipiac that had him at 38 percent, which I think is pretty clearly an outlier at this point. So, um, you know, all, all of all of this polling data, I think, is is good news for Joe Biden in the sense that um, 
it can't help but put a little bit more pressure on the squishy moderates to get something done because their own primary voters are very frustrated with them. I'd be really fascinated to see a poll of, of West Virginia Democrats right now. <laughs> um, I don't know what that poll would, I have no idea what, what I, I don't even have a guess what, what it would, what it would show. But my guess is that, that Manchin is at much higher than 25% with, with West Virginia Democrats. You know, um, it, it just so happens that Arizona is a, is a toss up state. I think it's still probably a, a Republican leaning toss up state, but it's certainly one um, where Democrats can win statewide. I think any Democrat in Arizona would be competitive in a statewide election there. I don't think that Kirsten Sinema's, um, you know, recalcitrance and, and I don't think her maverickiness and war with the party is really going to help her. Um, statewide, again, because partisanship is so hardened that Republicans will be like, oh, yeah, Kirsten Sinema, she's shutting it down, you know, but they're not going to vote for her, you know? <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I, I just think it's a, it's a short poll. It's not one of those polls with 72 questions on it, but it was very revealing to me. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it and it summarizes. I think uh, that poll really summarizes the views and opinions of so many people uh, that I talk to on a regular basis on this show. And uh, as I, I tell you all the time, we go pretty much from Joe Biden uh, on the uh, as, as the far right on this show, right? Uh, and <laughs> we, <laughs> and then we go to some people who just can't bring themselves to vote for Joe Biden because they think he's too. Uh, uh, right wing, but um, by and large, people are just disgusted with Kirsten Cinema even more than Joe Manchin. Uh, and by the way, when you said that uh, Democrat, I would love to see a poll of Democrats in West Virginia. That's a great. I hadn't thought of that. And there was a documentary that came out a couple years ago about women running for office in 2018, and most of the attention went to uh, AOC. She was uh, her campaign was featured in that. Um, in that documentary, but one of the this, uh, the characters in the documentary was a woman running against Manchin in the Democratic primary in West Virginia for senator, and it was just textbook Joe Manchin, the kind of campaign he ran. He basically kind of ignored her. Mm-hmm. Take kind of out of this, he ignored her, and then at the at the moment at, on the election night when he defeated her, he called her with to congratulate her. It was one of the most patronizing phone calls I've ever heard, uh, and so she got drubbed. I'm blanking on her name at the moment, which just goes to show you uh, that uh, how much he mentioned Dominator. But uh, it would be curious to see. You're right. In this environment where Joe Manchin has emerged uh, in his own right as somebody who's obstructing Joe Biden and helping Donald Trump, which is how Democrats view it, particularly on the issue of the filibuster, which we've talked about many times in the show. All right, let's move on to the other thing we want to talk about. I sent you this article as soon as I saw it in the New York Times. Uh, Ezra Klein wrote a, an article about a, a young pollster named David Shore, S-H-O-R, uh, who's a coming star in the ranks of centrist Democrats. Uh, and the headline of the story, David Shore is telling Democrats what they uh, don't want to hear. Uh, and essentially, if I could boil it down, and uh, David, correct me if I'm being too unfair to David Shore, uh, his central message is, move right, young man, move right. Uh, and go to the center and get there as fast as you can. Otherwise, you're going to be annihilated in 2022, in the midterm elections of 2022. And even worse, you're going to be double annihilated in 2024, where Republicans take over the world. Uh, And this is the message that David Shore is putting out. It's getting quite a bit of following. 
in uh, some circles of the Democratic Party. And as soon as I sent it to you, you said, let me at him. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so without further ado, take it away. Sure. So, I, you know, David Shore is a veteran. Uh, he's very young. I think he's in his late 20s, but he is a veteran of multiple Democratic campaigns at this point. He cut his teeth in 2008 as a teenager on Obama's first campaign. And then he was like a, you know, he was a he was a paid analyst in 2012 for Obama. Uh, I think his interest in Democrats winning is is sincere. I, I don't I don't doubt that he's that he's a Democrat who, who wants Democrats to win, who's terrified of Republicans. Um, but since the 2020 election, he has developed like a like this cult like following on the center left. Um, people go around. This is in the article too. What people go around saying that they've been sure pilled, you know, uh, which is a little bit twisted. It's a um, you know it's a it's a riff on the Matrix, you know, where you take the red pill and then you see you see the world as it really is. Um, and his his thing is uh, th the interesting thing about Shore is it's not purely ideological, right? It's not pure like move to the right about ex you know move to the right on everything, right? Like the victory is in the center. His um, his theory is that there's a set of cultural issues um, or racial issues um, that the, the institutional Democratic Party has moved quite far left on in the last ten years. <clears throat> that is that is alienating some voters that that Democrats need, um, particularly non-college educated Black and Latino voters um, who are not interested in defunding the police, or are not interested in abolishing ICE, who are not interested in like open borders or um, whatever we're calling it these days. Um, and and Shore's uh, theory has become known as popularism, and and popularism means the Democrats should do things that are popular. And not necessarily not do things that are unpopular, but like don't talk about them. Okay, um, and so for sure, the, the 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 key to understanding the Democrats' predicament is to understand that the people that work in Democratic politics, the staffers, um, the writers, the blue checks on Twitter, the people that write in in the elite media, are are disproportionately white progressives with elite educations who are not representative of the broader democratic electorate. Um, and that those people, you know, the, the, the staffers on campaigns, the people that run the Twitter accounts of our candidates um, are, are all significantly to the left of the, uh, of not just the, the average American voter, but even, even the, the average democratic voter um, on these sort of like hot button, you know, critical race theory kind of questions, you know? And so sure is terrified um, that we're going to lose the next two elections because because Democrats have become indelibly associated um, with solutions to the problem of racial injustice that maybe go that maybe go beyond the public opinion consensus in this country. And his thing is like, just do the polls. Okay, if something doesn't poll well, then don't you know? Then don't do it or don't talk about it. Um, and you know. It's not like there's nothing that we can learn from this guy, okay? <laughs> I think he's a good pollster. Um, part of Ezra Klein's article was like this litigation of whether Shore actually has the data that he's talking about. And I, I don't really doubt that he has the data. Um, but I do doubt the story that he's telling about the 2020 election in particular, um, which is a story of a significant number of uh, Latino and, and Black voters defecting from the Democratic Party 
because of the events surrounding the George Floyd protests and the calls to defund the police in, in the aftermath of that, he seems to think that there's a real connection between that rhetoric and and the and the charges of you know radical left socialism and some segment of culturally conservative um, Latino and Black voters who had been voting for Democrats, I think generally due to like this group threat dynamic um, where, where people want to vote for the Democrats because Republicans want to throw them out of the country or you know, reimpose Jim Crow, you know, um, and that these messages really cost Democrats. And I, I, I frankly don't see that in the publicly available polling data. Like we all know that the polls in 2020 were wrong. Um, that is, they were off by about two points in every direction, you, you know, um, the two, two points too low for Trump and two points too high for, for Biden, um, across the board in a lot of states in a lot of national races and a lot of Senate races, the polls were, were a bit off. Um, but they were using the same methodologies the whole time. And you simply do not see changes in the polling of the magnitude that Shore is talking about in the aftermath of the protest. If anything, Biden's position improved in the public polling, um, after the Floyd protests, after defund the police, right? Um, and uh, it didn't. It didn't really seem to hurt Biden at all. Maybe there was a brief period um, after the uh, after the incident in in Wisconsin where the polling seemed to suffer a little bit, but it but it rebounded by by election day, right? So um, I simply don't see that story reflected in the polling that he's telling. Um, but I have a, a I have a bunch of other philosophical problems with his with his argument um, that I would love to share with you. So go ahead, but I don't I just keep talking. You're so. on a roll. No, no, I love this. Cause I'm right. I'm taking notes. I have questions, but go ahead. Sure. So, okay. The, um, the first problem here is, um, the idea that voters have like a fixed set of issue positions and that they look at, at political candidates and they're like, like they're shopping for toothpaste or something, you know, and they're like, I really want the, I really want the teeth whitener, right? How much teeth whitener does this have? Uh, if it doesn't have it, I'm not going to buy this toothpaste, you know, like most voters are just sitting back and being like, okay, so what's the Republican position on this? You know, that, that's the Republicans say, let's give more money to cops. And, uh, oh, over here, the Democrats, you know, I, I heard that they want to take all the money away from the police. So, um, I think I'll vote for the Republican because that's what I believe, you know, um, and yes, there is a there is a hardcore minority of Americans who have very fixed ideological positions and, and go into each election with a, a set of ideological preferences that are more or less unchangeable. But that's not most people. Okay, what sure is missing is a large body of political science knowledge that demonstrates how political elites in both parties can bend the public opinion consensus in whatever direction that they want. Um, there is experimental political science that shows people, if they are told that their party supports, they could go into this experiment being like, um, you know, I, I want uh, I want Medicare for all, like I want a national health insurance program. And the experimenters will take this group of people and tell them, uh, okay, um, here's a news article. It shows that Democrats have now moved um, towards a, a more free market system of uh, letting people um, you know, finance their own healthcare and, and go bankrupt or whatever, you know, and that there's a lot of people who, instead of sticking with what they said they wanted coming into that experiment, um, will instead move their policy position to fit what the party says. Okay. And you can even see that 
in polling of Democrats about racial justice issues, uh, which have which has, has moved far to the left over the last 10 years, um, to the point where an overwhelming majority of, of white Democrats supported the George Floyd protests, are now skeptical of uh, just limitless financing of the police. Um, you know, they're not like police abolitionists, right? But it's clear that, you know, beginning with Obama and continuing through Hillary Clinton's candidacy, uh, not so much with Biden, but but there were other actors in the party who I think have clearly positioned the Democratic Party as the party of police reform, um, uh, racial justice. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that they've achieved any of these things, right? <laughs> but that the party has now become indelibly associated with some sort of mushy reform position. Um, and that people who 10 years ago would have laughed at the idea of, 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 of you know, shrinking police budgets in, in the cities are now on board with it because, um, because the leadership of the party expressed support for some of these positions. Now they never said defund the police, okay. Um, but just the idea that there is systemic racism, that's the, that is the big movement in public opinion that, is, that has taken place over the last 20 years within the Democratic Party to the point where our political candidates now go to their national conventions and say that America has a systemic racism problem. And many more Democrats than 20 years ago agree with that statement. Many more independents agree with that statement. And it's not because they went shopping and evaluated the evidence objectively and said, you know what, I've thought about this, I've read all the studies, I've read a lot of polling, I've read the scholarly literature, and I think America has a systemic racism problem. Um, and, and it's not that they spent a lot of time with um, uh, with with their black friends who, who talked them into this, right? It's that the party shifted its position on the question of racial injustice. Um, and there is no consensus within the Democratic Party, I think, about what to do about it exactly. But it's proof that the, the leadership of the party can move its own voters in, it, in their preferred direction if they are unified in their messaging about something. Okay. Um, I think what Shore is really missing here is that the problem um, with sort of loosely committed Democrats in some of these racial justice issues and some of the solutions that were floated is that the party is not united. Okay. Um, I guarantee you, if everybody on that debate stage in, in 2019 and 2020 had said, we need to defund the police, um, you know, they would have been hoots and howls at Fox News. Um, but eventually you would have seen 75, 80, 85, 90% of Democrats would eventually have come around and said, yes, we need to defund the police. Um, so that's one that's one problem, right? He's, he has the causality wrong. Um, it's not that you can't lose anyone when you take a position that's unpopular. Of course you can. Um, it can cost you from election to election. Um, I, I don't doubt that on the margins, the idea that Democrats were associated with defund the police hurt them. Um, but I don't think it was the deciding factor. Also, we won the election. D David Shore has been going around for like a year <laughs> talking as if they were doing an autopsy on a massive loss. Yeah. Um, and we won, man. We, you know, I'm not as uh, clearly not by as much as I wanted to win, but we won the presidency, we won the Senate and we won the house. And for us to sit around and just like shoot at each other for the next year after we won, it's just like such, the, it's like the most democratic thing that you can do. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> it's, uh, yeah it's 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 pretty frustrating um it's pretty frustrating well i i gotta tell you a couple of points i get your response to it um 
Uh, I read the article about David Short. I was just uh, shaking my head. Nothing ever changes, uh, David Ferris. Nothing ever changes. And I'm old enough to remember, well, 1972 Democratic Convention uh, where uh, Jesse Jackson's allies uh, in the Democratic Party of Illinois got George McGovern to uh, essentially kick Richard J. Daley, the most powerful Democratic mayor, out of the convention. It was a split in the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't remember, but I've read a lot about it. In 1964 Democratic Convention, uh, the Democratic, um, Mississippi Freedom Democratic faction wanted to seat its members, but the Democratic Party decided with, basically the white Democrats in Mississippi. And so you always have this tension in the Democratic Party. When I read a guy like David Shore advise Democrats to just like automatically go with the white guy because that's going to poll better, I'm like, dude, don't you realize that, first of all, number one, some people get into politics to do the right thing, not just to sell out every minute. I mean, not everyone is Bill Clinton and Rahm Emanuel. You know what I mean? Some people try to do the right thing. And whenever I say that, everybody goes, well, Bill Clinton won twice. I go, well, thank you, Ross Perot. Right. All right. <laughs> you know, I always forget that part. Right, David? Uh, so it's like David Shore, he kind of reminds me. I never met the guy. Obviously, I don't know him. But he reminds me of Brett Stevens, who's this right-wing uh, columnist for the New York Times, who who always he, – he, He's like, I, I, I find Trump offensive, but the Democratic Party is awful and they're too left and they should be more like me. And I'm like, you're not a Democrat. Why would we be more like you? It's just like, why would any Democrat want to be like you? And, and so that's what I listen to Sean. I'm like, what are we supposed to do? You, George Floyd was freaking murdered right in front of our face. We're supposed to say, well, you know, uh, uh, the opinion poll of swing voters in Virginia show me that uh, they don't want to go too hard on this. So can we just ignore this? Let's just ignore. Just follow his advice, David Ferris. We're going to ignore George, the murder of George Floyd. Right. They're like, I have this poll that shows uh, we'd all be better off if Derek Chauvin was acquitted. So uh, let's just get him acquitted. Yeah. We don't want to lose next year. Um, but I, I'm glad you brought up the civil rights era because this is a really important point. Um, if, if, if the, if the Democrats had been operating according to a theory of popularism in 1964, they wouldn't have passed the civil rights act. They wouldn't have passed the voting rights act. Um, none of the key achievements of that civil rights era would have happened if Democrats were only looking at polls because in 1964, the polls would have showed um, you know, a, a vast majority of white people hated Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the vast majority of white people did not want to alter this, the racial status quo in this country. Um, it was a minority position at the time. I don't mean racial minority. I mean, a, a minority of the, the people of the United States wanted to alter the, the um, you know, the, the apartheid system in the U.S. South. A minority of the population wanted to give um, African-Americans full and equal rights in this country. Um, and it's, as you said, it's like some people get into office to do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is not immediately popular. And it is the job of a political party to sell it, um, to go to their voters and say, like, this is why we need to shift money 
from a police budget to some other entity that can respond to like cats and trees and people having mental health, health crises without showing up with guns. Um, you know, I, nobody's saying let's, you know, abolish jails and abolish the police or whatever. The, the, the actual substance of defund the police is so reasonable that it, it makes my mind hurt that people don't support it. It's like, <laughs> we asked the police to do things that the police should not be doing and they're bad at it. Right. Um, and we need to get rid of the, you know, probably 10% of the cops cause 90% of the problems, just like in any profession. Right. So let's apply the same standards to them. Let's shift the money around, um, to address some of the social problems that, that, that lead to the police getting involved in the first place. Right. This could be a pro police argument. If you wanted to pitch it to certain communities in a certain way, you could say like, well, wouldn't you like to respond to fewer <laughs> shootings? Like, wouldn't that be good for the police too? So anyway, um, the, the, the point is, if you were just getting led around the nose by polls, um, you may never tackle the most difficult problems in your society because problems don't become entrenched without any, without people supporting it, you know? Um, and, and sometimes you really do have to, you have to make the difficult choice. The, um, the last thing I want to rant and rave about a little bit vis-a-vis -vis David Shore <laughs> is the idea that Democrats are entirely in control of their own narrative about the party itself, right? There's a, there's just a, there's a level of naivete that runs through this article um, and, and, and I, I guess the theory is that like, whatever Democrats say about themselves, that is what independents and people that tend to switch between the parties are going to think about them. Um, and, and here's the reality. Okay. The reality is that not one single democratic candidate for, for national office in the year 2020 said that they wanted to de defund the police. Not one of them. Okay. Joe Biden didn't say it. Kamala Harris didn't say it. Um, none of our Senate candidates said that they wanted to defund the police. None of our Senate candidates said that they were radical socialists, right? Like no one's going around being like, I love Venezuela. What a great place. <laughs> I would love to turn America into Venezuela. Yeah. You know, these are narratives that are produced in the right wing press in the right wing media that ricochet from like the Federalist to Fox News to OAN. Um, and then, in, in, you know, just swished around Donald Trump's diseased brain. And then it, and it comes out of his mouth. Um, and, and magically 47% of the country thinks that thing, right? There is a, there is a right-wing media complex, um, you know, of, of all people, Pete Buttigieg was the person that pointed this out in the democratic primaries. He didn't listen to his own advice several months later, but he said, look, it doesn't matter what we say or what we do. They're going to tar us as radical socialists. They're going to tar us as anti-police. Let me tell you something. Democrats could run 97 cops for the Senate next year. Like just just fire every Democratic senator and replace them with a police officer, <laughs> and they would still they would still go on Fox News and be like these these guys just hate cops you know they think all cops are bastards, and uh, it it doesn't matter you are fundamentally not fully in control of the narrative that that uh, particularly the other party's voters think of you okay that's the whole job of politics is to is to define the other party in the worst possible terms right. Um, it's something that Democrats are really, really tremendously terrible at. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you can, you can, you can get your message out and you can take the ads out, but increasingly people are not moved by TV advertising. Um, and so it's like, what are we supposed to do if, if the institutional 
I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on defund the police because it's, it's, it's like his most prominent argument, right? Um, but if, if the Institutional Democratic Party says we don't want to defund the police, um, and all the candidates say that, and none of the ads say that they want to do this, and frankly, they didn't run on this at all, right? Like they wanted, they, they ran away from all this stuff as, as quickly as possible. They went up yeah. <laughs> at the convention. They were like, yep, we definitely have a systemic racism problem in this country. So let's talk about pre-existing conditions. Um, <laughs> it's like, they didn't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. I, I don't know how, I don't know what else they could have done to distance themselves from a slogan that came out of the activist left. Um, I, I don't, I just, I simply don't know what the Democratic Party could possibly have done to put any further distance between themselves and this message that David Shore thinks poured, pulled really poorly. Um, it's, it's just, it's not in our hands, right? Like you have to bracket whatever they're going to say on Fox news. There's absolutely nothing we can do about that. Those people are unreachable. It's not just that they're unreachable. It's that they're paid to be unreachable. Yeah. Their, their role in the information ecosystem is propaganda and is to produce propaganda about Democrats. Yeah. And yes, perhaps that propaganda was effective last year um, in in repelling, you know, um, some some Latino voters in Texas clearly flipped from from blue to red. You know, it's as part of the project of figuring out why I, I welcome David Shore aboard. He's he's on the team. I just think that people um, are reading too much into his polling. I don't think that they're being critical enough um, about some of the things that he's saying. I don't think he's read a lot of political science, which which is just for the best for him and for anyone else. No one, no one can read political <laughs> science. Let me just summarize it for you. Okay. <laughs> Worst writing in the world. Um, but, the, but, but he's, uh, he's wrong about some important things. Yeah. Um, and so to see him become like sort of the default guru of democratic strategy is disturbing to me because I really don't think there's anything that if, if, if you are a voter in Wisconsin and you're convinced that Democrats want to defund the police and, um, and they want to turn Wisconsin into into Caracas, I, there's you, you can't reach that person. You, you can't reach that person with a message. And if you try, for every um, for every like white person in Kenosha um, who who thinks that you know um, anti police violence is out of control or something, and that's what you run on, you're going to lose a black voter in Milwaukee. You know what I mean? So, yeah. By the way, that one line you uh, you went off about how the Democrats are so bad at vilifying Republicans, just think about this, just underscores the point you made. The Democrats uh, chose as their nominee for the most important office in the country, a man who dedicated himself to spreading the message that bipartisanship still exists in the United States and there are good Republicans that you can work with, even though there's no evidence of either one. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have Trump. Every You're absolutely correct. What you said was a great riff. It's like what David, what David Shore says, ignore these issues. Don't bring them up. I'm like, well, it's not like Democrats are the only one who get to talk. Right. Republicans get to talk. <laughs> They're going to bring them up. Hello, David Shore. Yeah. But God bless him, man. The kid's, you know, making money and he's he's riding high. And you're right. If if he could be something productive, go figure out why uh, Latino voters uh, in southern Texas flip to Trump. I'm really curious about that. I've not seen yeah. many good theories about it. Uh, usually when it comes to Latino voters and analysts, uh, David, are just are so clueless because they treat Latino voters like they're black people. I'm like, wow, man, you must not get around much to know that, first of all, Latino voters are 
like come from many different backgrounds, many different countries, member different experience, come to this country from different settings. And they're like, well, we have not, we lost the Cuban American vote. You can't lose what you never had. God damn, no Cuban American in in Florida was ever voting Democrat. So I, if the, if this kid can go to Texas and figure out what happened, uh, I give him credit. But right now, man, what dumb it! I read that article. I'm like, man, this is like, this is like Clinton twenty thirty years late. Remember Clinton? Now you yeah. are old enough to remember this. With oh, yeah. Bill Clinton, you know, well, you know, um, this is the end of big government. I'm going to bring in welfare. Now we got in Chicago, they're like a guaranteed income program. We moved so far from Bill Clinton's ending welfare as we know it. We're giving. <laughs> We're giving money to people, which we should be doing. I'm not against it. I'm just saying, do you no. follow? You know, I've David. There's like a David Shore in the Democratic Party every ten years. You get yes. what I'm saying? Rahm Emanuel, Bill Clinton, David Axelrod, and uh, you know, just if I could summarize the theme, it's like these guys are obsessed with figuring out how not to lose instead of figuring out how to win. You know. They're they're so terrified of losing um, that they're paralyzed by it, um, and they're they're paralyzed by the overwhelming nature of all the problems that we face. The fact that our solutions to them are not all super popular. Many of them are, but they're not all super popular, right? And it's like they haven't lived through the last ten years. I mean, Republicans just lean into all these like dreadfully unpopular policies, and and they still win. You know, um, because they've got a wonderful propaganda operation, <laughs> um, because they're very good at defining Democrats. Um, again, it's still shocking if you read the transcript of the DNC this last year, the the the, the you know the convention. I'm not sure that the the word Republican appears in that transcript more than like five times. Um, you know, we should be calling we should we should not we should strike the word Republican as a solo thing out of our vocabulary, and we should be calling them reactionary Republicans, every single one of them, reactionary Republicans. They want to take us back to 1920. Um, and, and we're just not making that case. Um, it's all about Trump. You know, people don't care about the Electoral Count Act. Like, I care about it, right? But we're not talking about the right things. And um, it's just, it's such a defensive posture. It's so demoralizing to have your own leaders shy away from the issues that are most important to your most committed activists. It's a dynamic that's been going on my whole life. Um, it's frustrating. Anyway, don't listen to this guy, Okay. He's very smart. And there's some, he has some interesting things to say. He has some interesting contributions to make. I don't hate David Shore. I, I hate the fact that he's become like the voice of the Democratic Party. That that bothers me, and I think it's a mistake. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Uh, I don't think he's yet the voice of the Democratic Party, but uh, he's emerging, uh, emerging voice of the Democratic Party. I will point out one last thing before we leave this is that uh, the Democrats did the right thing in passing the civil rights a bill in 1964, and they lost the South. And Johnson, uh, President Johnson predicted that would happen. Uh, and here's how bizarre and twisted uh, American politics are and why I don't know if David Shore realizes this. So uh, President Johnson used uh, all the, all his legislative um, capabilities to get the, uh, the Senate and the, and the House to pass a civil rights bill. Uh, he predicted that the South would go Republican. The House, the South did go Republican, uh, and um, and so uh, now uh, we're seeing some very uh, early uh, signs that um, the uh, 
the South may Democrats could well, they won Georgia. That was encouraging. Uh, North Carolina was in play. I thought they were actually going to win it, but they didn't. So fine. It looks like it may be in some spots. It's tough, yeah. but uh, lost itself. But that doesn't stop the um, Republican Party uh, from going around saying it was Democrats who opposed all the civil rights legislation. They point to the old Democratic segregationists who yeah. voted against Johnson, who are now Republicans. And I'm like, and this proves my, what you were saying. There is another side, David Shore, out there that's putting out BS. They're putting it out night and day. So you trying to, you acting like they don't exist is like pretending you can win a basketball game on the assumption that the other side's not playing defense. You right. get what I'm saying? And it yeah. doesn't work that way. They get to cover you. Yeah, I know. Anyway. There, there are right. political umpires out there who are going to call a check swing uh, a strike. You know? Oh, my God. Oh, uh -oh. <laughs> sounds like a San Francisco Giant fan there. <laughs> Let me just remind San Francisco Giant fans, your team was down. It was 0 The count was 0-2, okay? Even if they gave him that ball, he still it was only 1-2. It sure as it was going to strike him out on the next pitch. Anyway, let's be honest, right? So yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> but uh, but it was a terrible call. You're absolutely correct. All right. Uh, and let's close with Nicholas Kristof, uh, columnist for the New York Times. I got a kick out of this. Um, he announced uh, that he was stepping down from his column at the New York Times. And he, I think he set up an exploratory committee. So it's pretty clear he's getting ready to run for governor of uh, Oregon. And almost immediately, he was <laughs> people were blasting him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what a Twitter. You got to really ignore Twitter to a certain degree. You know what I mean? I agree with the uh, like anti-Twitter heads on this one. At one point, you just got to kind of just move on with your life. Uh, so uh, your thoughts about uh, a New York Times columnist running for governor of Oregon. Go ahead. I'm going to give this one the thumbs down. Um, and it's nothing for or against Nick Kristoff, but Nick Kristoff is a New York Times columnist. And um, I'm sure that you and I can rattle off the whole roster of the whole New York Times editorial staff, you know, because we're political obsessives and we read everything. Um, your average person in Oregon does not know who Nick Kristoff is, right? And Nick Kristoff is also like a holdover. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that New York Times columnists should get like a 10-year contract and then they're gone. You know, um, Nick Kristoff, Paul Kregman, none of these guys have had much interesting to say in the last 10 years, to be honest, um, because it's like they take them out of their beat and they're they're no longer, I don't know, it's it's hard to explain, but they become, un, they become uninteresting after a while. I say this as, as someone who hopes to write op-eds for the next 40 years, um, but that's that's really valuable real estate. And, and they need to, when people have, had their their fill they they need to get rid of him like the fact that maureen dowd still has a column at the new york times is just like astonishing to me um but christoph is not even really i think one of the better known <laughs> new york times columnists at this point like his heyday was like in the in the early aughts um we have no idea what his political skills are like um i've i've never heard him speak i'm sure he's fine um but he also i don't think he's been living in oregon right like uh, it's just like he's going to move back to oregon to run for governor from the perch of his times column. And I, I, um, I just don't see how that's going to go that well. Oregon's a blue state, but it's not a landslide blue state. And I think the, the sort of elitist New York times, uh, carpetbagger thing is going to get thrown at him pretty effectively by whoever runs against them in the democratic primary. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't see it. Um, again, I don't dislike Nick Kristoff. He's fine. I would probably agree about 97% of the things in the world. Um, but I, I personally, but I would, if you're going to run a celebrity, this is my thing. If you're going to run a celebrity, make sure they're a celebrity. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like don't don't be like this guy's on the editorial staff of Jacobin. <laughs> no, uh, he should be the governor of Illinois. It's like uh, no, no one knows who that is. Okay, and no yeah. one cares. Um, it just seems uh, it, it just seems like a dream that's that's bound to get dashed against the uh, the rocky shores of the of the Pacific. There, yeah. but, um, I've been wrong before, so maybe don't well, give up maybe. hope yourself if you're listening to the show. <laughs> He's a regular listener to the Ben Jarosky show. Just give me your call, uh, Nick. That's all. I, uh, yeah, I'm following, I'm going to be following this one with interest and I just is smiling because, uh, every now and then, and you'll find this, uh, if you'll write a column that, uh, a reader will really identify with, uh, and in their enthusiastic response, they'll say something like, in this case, it's been said, Ben, Ben for mayor. And I always laugh because just if anybody knows anything about me, you know, I'm the least likely person to get it together to run for anything. Okay. And, and wouldn't want to be mayor in a million years. Uh, so it's a, it's a really, it makes you feel good. You know, that, that someone really responds to something you wrote. So maybe Nick, Nicholas Kristoff's received a lot of letters and emails over the years and tax or whatever saying, Oh my God, you're so good. I wish you were, wish you were in charge. Right. Yeah. Fill in the blank. And, um, so, uh, I wish him the bad. He's had a lot. I, he, sh we don't see eye to eye on the issue of, uh, teacher unions. We're radically <laughs> diametrically opposed. That may help you, Nick, me saying this, use this in your commercial. Uh, I'm a big supporter of teachers unions. My show is sponsored by a teachers union in part. So, uh, your attitude about, uh, choice and public education with that phony may help you. But other than that, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he showed a lot of courage. But, yeah, I'm like you. I'm, I'm watching this one. Uh, <laughs> I'm watching this one. This is a curious thing. A guy running for governor of Oregon who was his, uh, his platform is that his, um, or his jumping off point is that he was a columnist for the New York Times. All right, David Ferris, thank you so much. Uh, that was delightful listening to you, uh, that takedown of David Shore. David Shore, you're welcome to come on the show uh, for rebuttal anytime you want. Uh, <laughs> love to hear your uh, ex explanation of what the Democrats could have done differently after the whole world saw George Floyd murdered. It's interesting. Uh, you got to love to hear that one. Um, Anyway, uh, David Ferris, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Comes on now every other week, and it's uh, a delight talking politics with you. All right. Great to be here, Ben. I look forward to next time. Thanks so much. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.